Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. All right. Good morning, Ascent. Good to see you guys. We are finishing this series, My Life, My Rules, today. And uh, for the majority of the series, we've been looking at 3 John specifically. We've just been staying in that one book of the Bible. Uh, We've spent probably more time than any pastor ever in the world has spent on 3 John. It's such a tiny little book. But just as I kept going back to it, I thought it would be like one week. It turned into three weeks. It turned into five weeks. And this week, I was like, I could go another three weeks. I'm like, no, we gotta, we got to stop. Uh, so I had to draw the line somewhere. Uh, but today, we're doing something a little bit different. I kind of just want to zoom out and look at this as a, as a whole. And I want to talk specifically about that one thing that is most functional in the life of a believer when it comes to how God expresses his authority over us. And that is the word of God. This is the guiding factor in our lives. And yet, the word of God is a weapon. Uh, the Bible describes it as a double-edged sword. And a lot of us are not very careful with the Bible. Uh, just like, you know, if you, if you had an actual double-edged sword in your house, you would be very careful with how you use that thing. You know, you wouldn't get your three-year-old and say, pull out the double-edged sword. You know, you, you wouldn't run around the house with the sword in your hand. You'd be really, really careful about it. And we've got to be really, really careful about the way we read and use the Bible in our own lives. Uh, otherwise, we can use it to really, really hurt people. And we've all seen stories like this where somebody uses the Bible to justify behavior that is absolutely awful. People use the Bible to justify slavery. People have used the Bible to justify being mean and hateful to people who disagree with the way that we believe. And just as we read the words of Jesus, as we get to know the person of Jesus, we can sometimes realize the person of Jesus and what some of his followers teach using this book don't always match up. Uh, And really what sparked this was uh, last night I was watching YouTube. I can't sleep on Saturday. I used to try to go to bed early. It just makes me mad because I sit there and I think. So now I just I stay up until I get tired and then I go to bed. And I take a really nice nap on Sunday afternoon after this thing. Uh, and, and I was watching this. I don't know if it was Dateline or 2020. I can't remember. It was one of them. They were doing an interview of these kids who had been trapped. There's 14 kids and they were trapped by their parents in their house. And their parents used the Bible to justify what they did. They starved their kids. They chained them up to beds. They never let them go outside of the house. And uh, they were all really, really, really skinny. Uh, in fact, one of the 14-year-olds had arms as, as small as what a four-month-old would have for arms. Crazy. And, uh, and the dad used, and the mom, they both used the Bible as justification for the way that they were treating their children. So how do we not use this book for hate, but still allow it to guide our lives? Because it is a guide in our lives. We can't just throw out the Bible, which is what some people want to do. You know, I'll just agree with the parts I like and the parts I don't like. No, these things are here on purpose and for a purpose. But the Bible is not God. That's why I had Cheryl read that point where Jesus is making to the Pharisees. And he's saying, look, the scriptures, you search in them because you think there's life in them. But really, I am the life. The scriptures, in other words, point to God. So so when Jesus comes back and he is with us, we're not going to be reading the Bible. Because we're going to be with him. We're going to be with the word of God himself. If you have a question, you go and you ask Jesus. You know, it's like, well, Blake going to teach us from 3 John? No, you're not going to want to listen to me. I could preach, but nobody's showing up. I don't know, maybe my grandma. Grandma Wendy would probably still show up to my sermons in heaven. <laughs> like, I love your preaching, Blake. You know, and, but Jesus would have to come up and correct everything I was saying anyways. Because the book, this book is to point us to Jesus. 
and to express its authority in our life. But we have to do it carefully. So when you came in, I gave you uh, my notes for today. There's 16 ways that we are careful with the Bible. And the reason I gave you my notes is, one, because I don't even know how many I'm going to get through in this. So I want you to have it so you can ask me what I mean by it later. And also because I want this to be a source to you. Uh, And I'm not saying every time you read the Bible you do these things, but I am saying if you have a disagreement on something, you ought to do these things before you take uh, an opinion on it that is really strong. And if you're going to open your mouth and teach people the Bible, whether that be your children uh, or whether it be a friend, you ought to make sure you're doing these things before you speak with any kind of authority. Because I I hear all the time people say, well, Blake, here's what I think about it. And, And I really, I love you. But in my mind, what I'm saying is, why do I care what you think about it? Like, who are you? What have you done? And, and I don't mean that from an arrogant place like I know more than you do. I, I mean, myself included, we're all men. Like the oldest of us have been here around 80 years in this room. You know how small 80 years is in comparison to the history of the world? It's nothing. We're all infants, tiny, little, insignificant people on the grand scope of time and history. And here we are speaking authoritatively about what God is and what God is not. And especially those of us who don't take the time and have the humility to say, now let me think about what this might actually be saying. So I want us to be people who are not arrogant. I want us to be people who are humble. And so we're going to walk through these 16. And, uh, but first I'm going to pray for us. And, uh, and then we're, we're going to see how far we can get. All right, Father God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus. Uh, God, we don't have to wonder what you're like because you came. You took on flesh. And that's what we're celebrating as we come into this Advent Christmas season. Lord, and I also thank you that you left behind your word. You, you inspired the Old Testament writers and you inspired the New Testament writers so that they might give us guidance on how to live this thing called the Christian life. But God, we are complicated people. Uh, we don't know as much as we think we know about things. Uh, God, we are selfish. We're self-centered. And sometimes we read that into your word and we use this gift that is the word of God as a very evil tool against other people and against your very will. God, I pray that you would guide us into reading the Bible carefully, that we would be people who think through what we believe and we would let what we believe actually guide us. God, it's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Number one, and I've already kind of alluded to this, but we've got to start with the right posture. I want to read Luke 18, 9 through 14 again. Verse 9, he, and the he here is Jesus, he also told this parable to some who entrusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. And you got to be really careful this isn't you because we all have a little bit of this in us. Every single one of us, there's times in which we look at people and we think, yeah, I'm a little better than them. Now you might think that you, you don't do that, but, but I would guarantee you if I put you in a room with people who you think you're better than, whoever that might be. For a lot of us, it's people who are financially less than us. You know, we love to talk about loving the poor, but if I put you in a room with a bunch of poor people who didn't have a home and smelled kind of bad, you would probably think some thoughts about them because you think you're better than them. We have to be careful of this kind of righteousness that we can have in ourselves. And when you know the Bible, you can really become this way. You can really become this way because you begin to think, look at them. They're so embarrassing in the the little amount that they know. And look how good I am. I I go to church. I tithe. I do all these right things. Look how much better I am than them. And Jesus is saying, that's the very guy who you've got to be careful about. If you come to the Bible with that posture, you're already in trouble. It says two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. That's a guy like me. He, He gets paid to read the Bible and to know scripture. And the other a tax collector. Somebody who's very hated in the Jewish community. 
The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. That's how I imagine Pharisees talk. I don't know. Probably not. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector, which is also just like a funny picture, you know? Like who prays like that? Like this guy. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You've got to understand, you're standing before God and you're saying things that he said to other people. Or you're, you're trying to come to this word, and, and if you think you've mastered this word, which is a lie, then you've got to understand the arrogance that is within you. I, I was watching this week uh, a, a trial, and in this trial, when they were reading the verdict... Uh, the, the person, the defendant, as the verdict was being read, when they read the verdict, he literally collapsed and started shaking because he was standing before this judge and this jury who was defining what would happen to him the rest of his life. Now, I want you guys to take that feeling and times it by a million. And that might get kind of close to what you'll feel before God. Like when you get to stand face to face with the God of this universe, the one who created the Milky Way, you are not going to stand up to him and make your case. You're going to collapse in front of his glory. And that's what this guy, this sinner, gets. He understands the only way I'm okay is if this God, who is so great, has mercy on me. That's the only way. And and what I love about our God is that we know he is a merciful God because he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. But he came to save those who think they need saving. And if you don't think you need saving... You're not a candidate for what Jesus says. He says, I came for the sick, not those who are already well. This guy already thinks he's well, so he can't see Jesus. And the whole point of the commands is not that you would do them rightly, but that you would see God through them and you would know God. Let me ask you this way. Why do you want to be forgiven of your sins? If I were to ask that question, I think what I'd get an answer a lot of is, so I don't have to go to hell would be one of the answers. Um, Or maybe it's the opposite way, so I can be in heaven, paradise, where I get whatever I want. And I would just say, if that's why you want your sins forgiven, you've kind of missed the point of the Bible. Because the point of the Bible is we have our sins forgiven so that we can know God. I can have a relationship with the God of this universe. There is a way for Blake to have a relationship with God. That's what is so powerful. And all those other things are great. Man, it is great that I have forgiveness of my sins. Great that I'm justified. Great that I'm sanctified. Great that I'll spend eternity in a place that is good and great. But the best thing of all is that I can know God now and forevermore. So you start with that posture. Number two, you pray. And I put on there over and over again. This whole process is about prayer. Uh, The New Testament tells us we don't have instructors like normal people have instructors because the Holy Spirit is our instructor. In other words, I'm not, I'm a teacher and, and, and I'm supposed to teach you. But ultimately, if you are a Christian, your main instructor is the Holy Spirit. God resides within you. And so the Holy Spirit wants to guide us in the ways that are right. His children, God's children, will be guided by them. Uh, That family uh, that I was telling you about at the beginning, uh, the 14 of them, they they finally escaped. And the girl who escaped and and talked to a cop, uh, the reason she started to think things weren't right is because uh, they they got a, a phone. One of the older siblings got a phone so they could call their parents. And she started watching Justin Bieber videos. If God can save you through Justin Bieber... 
I'm just saying, he can reach you where you are. And, and he began, she began to watch Justin Bieber, and Justin Bieber was, uh, at the time, going through his own kind of faith journey. And, and so she started to realize, there's other ways to think about the Bible and God. And there's other ways that people live than the way we're living. And they started to go out. But what I want you to understand is as you come to a topic, whatever it may be, um, when, when you're thinking, what do I think about this in the Bible? You start with prayer. You start with asking, what does God want, not what does I want? And you trust that he's going to lead you. Number three, uh, and this is something I would just encourage you. I do this every week when I prepare a sermon. I basically gave you my sermon prep outline. This This is how I make a sermon. Number three is you read the text five times, at least five times. And then you read it in five different translations is what I like to do. And then uh, also when you're reading a text, you got to read the full context of the text. So don't just pick one verse out and say, look, here, I'm going to build my life upon this verse. For instance, in the, in the New Testament, there's this verse about uh, women wearing head coverings in the church. Uh, and yet none of you guys are wearing head coverings. And I'm not going to institute that we should wear head coverings. Why? Well, because you see the context of the text is not uh, having women wear head coverings for all times. It's actually in the culture something that Paul wanted them to have. And there's, there's a greater principle to it, which is you ought to be uh, not distracting from the worship of God in, uh, in a worship service. Which we could talk more about that for a different sermon. But the point is to read the full context. Number four is to read it in the original language. Now, most of you probably don't know Greek and Hebrew. I I know just very little, just enough to be dangerous with it uh, and probably make a lot of mistakes. Uh, But what you can do and what I do also is there's two different resources that I put on there. I'm hoping this is really practical for you guys today. Openbible.info is a good one and Biblehub.com. And you can literally go on there. It's called the Interlinear Bible. And they'll, they'll put it in the Greek. And you can click on the Greek words and it'll give you different definitions for what the words are. Because you want to understand what the author was originally saying in their language. And then number six, or number five, is remember that the Bible, these all build on each other also, is meditation literature. So you ask questions and you look for cross references. In other words, we often write really boring books today. And we view the Bible as one of those boring books. Uh, a boring book is a history book. When you read a history book, it's just, it's just history. They just give it to you. You don't have to think much about it. The Bible is written a lot more like art and poetry, which is as you read it, you discover more and more and more about it. That's why we could spend so much time in Third John. Because as I kept reading it, you can't ever mine to the bottom of it. The authors of the Bible all were deeply invested in other authors of the Bible. And so they'll do what I call hyperlinking, uh, which is like when you're on a website like Wikipedia, you know, and uh, they got the little blue underline. You can click from one topic to the next topic. And then I, or YouTube maybe, where they got the hyperlinks on the side and you can click on them. And then you spend like eight hours when you meant to spend 30 minutes. Uh, maybe that's just me and ADHD, but that, that tends to be what happens for me. The Bible does a lot of hyperlinking. So they'll talk about things that are supposed to make you think about other things in the Bible. And you're not going to know that unless you know the Bible. You look at cross references. When I'm in the Old Testament, I look and see, did Jesus say anything about this? Because my general rule of interpretation is I'm going to go with what Jesus says. Like, I know you think you're smart, but I'm going to go with what Jesus said. Like, if Jesus says something about Jonah, I care more about what he said about Jonah than what some smart guy at Harvard says about Jonah. Because that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look at how the Bible translates itself. Which leads me to the next one, and that is ask questions of the text like a scientist. So you come to a text, like something where it says, uh, you know, women should wear head coverings in church. You should ask questions. Why? What's the purpose of having women wear head coverings? And by the way, if you have the right posture, you you should also be saying, if this is what the Bible's saying, I'll do it. But I just want to make sure this is actually what the Bible is saying. Actually take the time to ask the questions about maybe there's something else going on here. And if so, why would it be there? Number seven is you got to seek to understand the culture it was written in. 
Uh, I used this illustration a few months ago, but it'd be like if you saw a headline of a newspaper and the newspaper said, uh, the Cowboys are facing off against the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. We would all know what that meant. We would all know it's a football game. If we were to go back 100 years and we had that same title, everybody would think there was some kind of war in a big bowl somewhere between actual Cowboys and actual Indian Chiefs. And the same is true with the Bible. We often take a lot of what we see here, a lot of the context and culture that we live in, and we apply it to the Bible when it was written to a completely different people in a completely different time. So we have to respect what the author is actually saying. Um, if, if some of you, if, if, you treated, if people treated your words the way you treat God's word, you'd be really offended when it comes to context. You know, like if you told your kids, hey, guys, I want you, I'm going to go out, and what I need you guys to do is take out the trash and to wash the dishes. And then you left. And you came back, and the trash was still full, and the dishes were still dirty. And your kids said, yeah, I know what you said, but the way I took it, the way I interpreted it, was you wanted me to clean the filth in my own heart and to take out the proverbial trash that I have in my own life. You'd say, you're grounded. You know? <laughs> Don't backtalk me. But that's what so many people do with the Bible. Like, it's clearly saying something that the author intended for his original audience. And if we don't take the time to ask, what was he actually trying to say by this? Because it was actual, actually something real. Like, the people who were reading it weren't like, oh, this is going to be useful in 2021, but it has nothing to do with us. No, it had something to do with the people who were originally reading it. And we have to start there. Honor the authors in the original context. Uh, number eight is ask four questions. These are the four questions I ask every time I come to a text. And you start with this. It's, the order is really important. Number one is what does it say about who God is? We often start when we read the Bible. What's it saying about me? You know, we open up the Bible. Oh, I'm beloved and I'm loved. And this is what it says about me. And, and you guys get bored when you get to verses that don't talk about you. You're like, oh, this is boring. It doesn't talk about me. Let's get back to me. It's a very narcissistic way to read the Bible. The Bible, all of it from beginning to end starts with who God is. That, that, that's, that's what's special about the Bible is that it reveals who God is in his nature. So we start with asking, what does it say about God? And sometimes you go in Leviticus and you're like, what does all this say? And all these laws, you know, they're so weird. But what does it say about God? It says God likes order. It talks about holiness, how God has called us to be set apart because he is holy. So we learn these things about God. And then it leads to the next question, which is, what does it say about Jesus and the gospel? The whole Bible is about God redeeming people to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And every page of your Bible is about that. Every Old Testament story is about that. It's leading us to the Messiah. It's not about you facing your giants when we read David and Goliath. I mean, that's fine as a, like a lower tier application way down the line. But you've got to understand the reason why David and Goliath is in the Bible is because we need a David to take out our Goliaths. Like, you want to know who you are in the story of David and Goliath? You're the other Israelites over there scared out of your pants waiting for somebody to save you. Jesus is our David, the one who shows up and slays the giants and then calls us into battle after him. This is who Jesus is in the Bible text. And we see this throughout all of the stories in the Bible. If you read a story about Noah and you think you're Noah, you're missing the point. Noah is the lesser Jesus. Moses is the lesser Jesus. Abraham is the lesser Jesus. On through the line of the Bible characters. And that's why they're all so messed up. That's why David did some really awful things. Because the Bible wants us to know that this isn't the guy. It all starts in Genesis chapter 3, after the curse. Uh, God says, 
to the snake. He says, there will be a seed of the woman who raises up and, and uh, you'll bite his heel, but, but he'll crush your head. And so the whole rest of the Bible is wondering, who is that snake crusher? Who is the guy, the Messiah, who's going to come and take care of this huge problem that we've made for ourselves? And what we see throughout all of the, the scripture is that there are a lot of great candidates, but none of them quite measure up. In fact, if you read the Bible, you'll go, man, these people are really messed up. <laughs> like, read the book of Judges, and you're like, wow, I thought I was bad. I feel really good about myself now. Like, you need to take a shower after reading about some of the kings. They, they were awful people. And the point is, this isn't the guy, this isn't the guy, this isn't the guy, this isn't the guy, until we get to the New Testament, and we meet the guy. His name is Jesus. He lives the perfect life. See, Christians don't have a flawless argument. That's why when people start arguing about evolution or not evolution, I'm like, you've already lost people. We have a flawless person. His name is Jesus. You get to know Jesus, everything else takes care of itself. And the text is always pointing towards that Messiah. Number three is, what does it say about my identity? Who am I as a person? Not what do I do, but who am I as a person? It's important to know that at your core, you are loved. That at your core, you are called to holiness. At your core, you are a family member in the body of Christ, a servant and a missionary. And then after all that, through that, what you can then do is ask the question that you all want to ask, which is what does it say about how I should live? In light of all of that, now what do I do in my life? Number nine is, uh, after this, I put, I consult with commentaries and trusted teachers. Uh, You want to do this at number nine, not first. What a lot of people do is they just go find their favorite Bible teacher and and they kind of do whatever he or she says. And that's one way to do it. Uh, But I would say struggle with it for yourself first. Ask these questions because then what you can do is instead of just having somebody talk to you, you can almost have a conversation with them. Because you know about the text. So you can call things out like, well, yeah, I know you say this, but it seems to say this. And and we can actually have a conversation and go back and forth. You can have a conversation with these commentaries. And I like to use commentaries from dead guys also. You should do this. We have a beautiful, rich history in the Christian world. Uh, It goes back literally thousands of years. And we tend to think our kind of generation is the smartest generation. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. uh, Because we think, oh, look at us. We're so much better. We're so much more sophisticated than those other brutes way back then. (laughs) No, we're not. Don't be so arrogant. There's things we can learn from Christians who are leading the charge in the year 300, in the year 1500. And so I like to go back and look, what does church history say about this as we look back? And then, yes, you do consult teachers. But I would tell you this, two things you've got to be careful of. I often look for teachers who will confirm what I want instead of challenge what I already believe. This is what we do. In fact, Paul tells us that we're going to do this. He says, when we look at the church, there will be people. And I is one of these people who (laughs) likes to find teachers who the word he uses is tickle their ears. You know, it feels good to hear it. You know, I, I honestly, I want to hear a teacher tell me that what I'm doing is not wrong. And you all do also. Like, I want to hear somebody that already agrees with my worldview because it's so much easier than having to change everything. Right? Like, you want me to say that women don't have to wear head coverings. You want me to say that because you don't want to start wearing head coverings. And the, the point of it is, is when we come to text and we're really trying to figure it out, we need to listen to people we disagree with. And, and by the way, you're likely to still disagree with them at the end of it but at least you'll understand where they are coming from and you'll have a better stance in your own argument. And, and sometimes, and this has happened several times in my own life, I come and I am completely disagreeing with somebody or something and I come out of it and I'm like, wow, they're kind of right. They got a good point about that. I did this with the Catholic radio 
Because as a Protestant, we talk a lot about, bad about Catholics growing up. And I realize I don't know anything about Catholics, except for what I was told by other Protestants. So there's a Catholic radio here, and I started listening to Catholics. And at first, I was like, what do they know, Catholics? You know, read your Bible. And then I started listening, and I'm like, hey, the Catholics, they know some stuff. And, and I actually, I grew really a lot by listening to these Catholic thinkers. Now, I'm still Protestant for a reason, but, but I, I used to view Catholics as like against the church of Jesus. And now I'm seeing it as just, it's another way of approaching Jesus. But most Catholics agree on the most important things. Now, there are some, as there are some Protestants, who don't agree on those things. And those people are outside the faith. But the point is to listen to those you disagree with, to have conversations with them. And then you need some good sources. I put some uh, good sources down there that I like listening to. I don't always agree with these guys. You never find anybody you always agree with. But I, I agree with these people uh, in the way that they come to the text. They approach it with the right posture. And that's what I'm looking for. The first one is Naked Bible. Uh, it's just a funny name. I don't know why he thought that would be a good idea. Every time I tell people Naked Bible, they're like, is that a sin? Can I listen to that? <laughs> it means stripped from like denominational biases is what he means by Naked Bible. Just the bare Bible. Uh, and then there's some other ones. You guys can look them up when you want to. And hopefully I am a resource for you. There's a reason why we pay teachers. There's a reason why uh, you, you guys want me doing this job. Because you don't have time to do this every week. You don't have time to. And I don't think you're supposed to. We are given teachers for a reason. And Ephesians 5 says, uh, or Ephesians 4 rather, says God has given us teachers to build up the unity in the body. That's why I try to teach in such a way that might be a little cumbersome at times. I try to explain everything, show my work to you, because part of my job is to teach you, not just to make you feel good and warm and fuzzy. I like doing that sometimes, but most of the time, my job is just to get up here and explain what I believe so that it actually changes your life. You actually have a better understanding and clarity on how to walk with Jesus Christ. All right, number 10. This is really important. Whenever you're listening to a teacher, check your motives and their motives. I already talked about our motives. We generally want people to say what we're already doing is okay. Uh, but the motives of the teacher are important also. If you listen to a guy talking about money and he pulled up in a BMW, just take it with a grain of salt what he's saying about money. He might be trying to get your money. Uh, if you're listening to a guy uh, who, who talks about you know, things of, of sexual integrity and then they're like, uh, you know, they've got 47 wives on the side, <laughs> maybe... Maybe I'm not going to listen to you the same way I should others. Which, by the way, if you want to know what a cult is, I tell you, every cult, every cult, the leader of the cult has a lot of wives. I mean, I just, I've noticed that, uh, which is why Jesus is really special in that sense. He lived a completely celibate life. Jesus has all the credibility. This is why he's also the greatest teacher ever. He talks about money. He was poor. He talks about sex. He was celibate. He talks about power. He was under the oppression of the Roman Empire. That guy can tell me stuff. You look at other guys like uh, Muhammad with Islam. He, he, he ran an entire country. He had all the power. He had nine wives, and he said it was okay to beat your wife. That guy doesn't have authority over me when he tells me I can only have one wife. Who are you to talk, buddy? But Jesus has all the authority, and that's not just with the major teachers. You've got to look at my life. You've got to check my motives, because I do have them. I'm biased. Check the political leanings of the person, because especially in America, our politics often influence the way we read the Bible, and it shouldn't. Uh, sometimes... Uh, our politics align with the Bible, but there are going to be times also when our politics don't line up perfectly. And we've got to be willing to say, I don't put my faith and trust in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And at the end of it all, there will not be Republicans or Democrats or anarchists or any other kind of form of government. There will be the form of government that is Jesus. The kingdom will come to bear. And that will be the kingdom that we all worship and live in. There will be no more elections. Thank the good Lord. And I firmly believe there will be no more Facebook rants also. But I could be wrong. That's not in the Bible. 
Uh, number 11 is I talk it out with people uh, that I trust in real life. So people that I actually know. This is why it's so important to be a part of the church. Part of the reason why that family was so destructive is because they isolated themselves from anybody else. You know, if, if I came to you and I said, you know, I've been reading Deuteronomy. I think I should chain my kids to my bed. You guys would pretty quickly tell me that was a bad idea. They'd be like, ah, I don't think that's what you ought to do. But if you isolate yourself, you begin to read into it with only your mind and you begin to think things are okay when they're not actually okay. We begin to convince ourselves. So I want to talk it out with real people, people who know me, who watch the way that I live, people I trust. I would love to be a resource like that. But what I also love is how you guys as people, you get in these groups together and you read books together and you discuss ideas together. Man, I want that culture to continue in our church. It's so beneficial for me. Every week I'm in two or three men's studies and uh, I'm, I'm sermon prepping with them and they don't even know it because I'll throw out an idea and I'll see what do you think about it? And somebody will say, well, yeah, but have you seen this verse? And I'm like, oh, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about how that affected this thing. And together we come and we talk it out. And this takes a good posture also here because what you'll do sometimes if you're arrogant is you'll just try to get people to believe what you believe. That's what we see with Demetrius in 3 John actually is that he's pushing everybody out who doesn't agree with him. You've got to be willing to listen to other people and see where they're coming from on it. Number 12, this is a really important one, is you've got to try to understand the purpose of the command. And I'm running out of time. I realize that. You got to, they put the clock back up on the screen. It used to just be a picture of me up there. Now I, I don't have an excuse. So when I start talking fast, you know we're about 1050, uh, which would be right now. Try to understand the purpose of the command. Uh, you got to find the why behind it. And this is really a huge problem, uh, and it's why a lot of people don't understand Christianity. And we've lost a lot of kind of our witness to the world. Uh, and it's because we tell people what to do, but we don't even know why we're doing it ourselves. Why does God care about who or who I don't have sex with? Why does God care about my money? Why does God care about these things? And uh, we oversimplify it. We think all of God's commands are equal, and they're not. We think all sin is equal in the way it's described, and it's not. There's different kinds of sin uh, for different kinds of things. And there's really three different kind of forms of commands that Jesus gives us, and they all serve different purposes. So the goal of the Christian life, the fulfilled life as we call it, uh, we believe here at Ascent, you can experience salvation, find peace, no purpose, and live fulfilled. The fulfilled life is when you love Jesus so much that you begin to love like Jesus, and then through that love, you inspire the world. And the three commands that God gives us fall in those lines. Love Jesus, love like Jesus, and inspire the world. So if you look at the chart... I gave some just brief examples. Uh, so in the, the first category, uh, tithing, prayer, gathering, fasting, Sabbath. Why does God care about these things and command them for us to do them? And the reason is they're means of grace, is what theologians would say. They're means of And a mean is not an end. You understand that? A mean is how you experience something that is the purpose. So grace is your divine favor with God that you don't deserve. You've been made a son or a daughter of God. So that you can have relationship with God. Now, how do I actually experience that? Because I don't know about you, but God doesn't actually physically show up very often in my life. In fact, he never has. And if he does, I'm pretty sure the skin is going to melt off of my skull because of his presence. So how do I actually experience this grace? And he gives us means of grace. See, and one way to think of this is when you think about the people you love, you want to be with the people you love. You want to talk to the people you love. And so you use different means. For instance, I text my wife, Taylor, sometimes. But my point is not texting. You know, I don't wake up every day and go, time to text Taylor. You know, I, I, I want to talk to Taylor. So when I'm not with Taylor, I text her. But there are days when I don't ever text Taylor. You know why? 
Because I'm with her. I don't need to text her. Texting, phone calling, all these things are not the point. The point is that I get to be with Taylor. And what we can do is we can take these things like tithing, prayer, gathering, fasting, and make them the thing, which is what the, the Pharisee does in Luke. He makes it the thing. He says, this is what I did. Look at me. And it's like, so what? Like, if I woke up every day and said, I text my wife 12 times this week, you guys would be like, okay. You know, like, why do we care about how many times you text your wife? But if I stand up here and I say, I love my wife. We built our relationship this week. You guys would say, oh, that's great. I'm so glad that you did that. The same is true with God. See, we often view God as this abstract idea, which is okay sometimes. But what God is, is he's a personal force. And he ultimately wants to know you. So the goal of these means of grace is that you would love Jesus. Now, if you sin, and sin literally means, there's different words for it. It's it's a stain, it's a debt. But in the New Testament, it's primarily described as missing the mark. Uh, which is like, uh, uh, it's literally like the picture of an archer shooting for uh, a target and he missed it to the left or to the right. That's what sin is. You're missing the mark of what God wants for you. Uh, And if you sin in this area, you're just foolish. You're foolish. Because if you want to know God, then you ought to want to use these things. And and when, when you forget the end of it, that's when they become cumbersome. You know, when people say, man, I should pray more. I want to pray more. I should read my Bible more. I'm trying to read my Bible. It's like, you're missing the point. Because if your desire is to know and love God more, then that stuff will fall in line. You don't have to convince me to read my wife's text messages because I love my wife. I shouldn't have to convince you to read God's word if you're trying to do it so you can actually experience God. And that's also why we gather together. All right, the second category uh, is the, the glorify God category. Glorify literally means reflect. So we're supposed to reflect God's image into the world. Uh, and some examples of this are when we love like Jesus has. First uh, John 2, 3 through 6. I'm just going to read 6. says, The one who says he remains in him, Jesus, should walk just as he walked. That's the goal of the Christian life, that you would live like Jesus would live if he were you. That's a lifetime project, but that's what you're ultimately aiming for. I want to live like Jesus would live if he were me in my present circumstances, with the things I have going on in my life. I want to live as the Messiah would live if he were me. That's how we glorify God. So this is things like forgiveness, generosity, loving others as Jesus has loved us, the golden rule. All these things are like that. And it helps us love like Jesus. Now, the sin here is how it misses the mark is at the base level, it's unkind. So there's some things that Jesus says to do. If we don't do them, we're just kind of rude. Um, but they're not criminal and they're not evil. It's like, you know, uh, I, I, uh, I'm not going to go there. Uh, number two is the filter does work sometimes. Uh, some things are immoral. Uh, but they're not criminal. They're immoral. So like, for instance, greed, I think, is immoral. But you don't necessarily get thrown into jail for being greedy. But it can be pretty immoral if you use that greed in, in bad ways. If you go up a level from that, it's criminal. Like, th- there should be laws against this for everybody, and we all agree on it. This would be like murder. Like, nobody here is like, I think we should sanction murder. If you are, please let me know so I can call the police. They're criminal. Now, what Christians sometimes do, especially if we bunch all these together, is we try to make everything criminal. We, try, you know, we try to make everybody believe what we believe, and if you don't believe it, then you're criminal. And I just want to say that's a very small section of what Scripture says. We're not supposed to be politicians in the fact that we force people to follow Jesus. We need to be prophets speaking about Jesus so people want to follow Jesus. And if you don't want to follow Jesus, then you don't have to follow Jesus because you have free will. And a lot of us forget that. And then kind of at the worst, it's, you know, the sin is evil. Not all sin. I think when I say sin, a lot of you immediately think, oh, he's calling that person evil. If I say it's, it's a sin for, for you to, um, you know, live outside 
live together outside of marriage, you can say, well, he's saying I'm evil, and you get really defensive. I'm not saying that it's evil. I'm just, I'm, we'll get to marriage here in a second. Um, but when we hear that, then it, it really puts people off. So it can be anywhere from unkind to, to evil. And here's the last one. If you guys are worried, I'm going to go through 14, 15, and 16 super, super fast. Uh, but I want to spend time here because I think this is so important. We forget these things. Uh, and this would be what I would call the holiness commands. And these are the ones that get Christians in trouble a lot, and I think most of us don't understand. Uh, so this would be like things like church leadership. What do you believe about uh, women in ministry? What do you believe about pastors? Um, there's some people who message me and said, I shouldn't be a pastor because I don't have kids. And Paul says, uh, you got to love your kids. Uh, so how can I love kids that I don't have? Uh, so what do you believe about that? Marriage. Uh, what does marriage mean? Who does it, who's supposed to be in a marriage? How long are they supposed to be in a marriage? What are the grounds for divorce? All of these questions. Gender, sexual integrity, submission. All of these things are really important. Which, by the way, in that Dateline or 2020 deal, I thought it was hilarious because they were diagnosing the problem. And they said it was, the problem was their conservative faith, such as no sex before marriage and drinking. And I'm like, okay, really? That's where you're going to draw the line on the problem? You know, like I, I personally believe the Bible teaches you shouldn't have sex before marriage. And I've never been tempted to chain my kids to the bed. Like there's, there's different things probably that were going on there than that. It goes back to this idea of misunderstanding why Christians do this and because Christians try to force non-Christians to do these things. The reason for this category of commands has nothing to do with you. Let me say it again. Nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with what is most efficient or what would work best. None of those things, which is how most of us view it. You know, well, here's how I feel about it. Or, man, that would just be really rude. Or, you know, I don't feel loved by this. You know, we go out. That's my annoyed voice. Uh, uh, so, so, but the point of these is holiness, which is we're supposed to be set apart. They're supposed to be weird. People are supposed to ask them about us so that we can tell them about the gospel. These kind of commands are signs. And you know what I want about a sign? I want it to tell the truth. Like when I drive to Oklahoma City, it is the most boring drive. And when I pass the sign that tells me I still have 80 miles left, I don't like the way it feels. I am mad about that sign. But I don't want them to change the sign because I need truth. I need to know because the sign is not the point. The point is Oklahoma City. And you know how far away I am from Oklahoma City. Marriage, and some of these other ones, but I'll focus on marriage for a second. Uh, marriage is like that. Uh, Jesus tells us in the new kingdom that there will not be marriage. So why is it here? It's a sign. It's supposed to point to the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, the groom, loves the bride, the church. So my Christian marriage is not about me. Again, I'm not saying everybody outside of the Christian faith needs to follow this, but I'm saying for me, because it's not about my personal satisfaction or what would be most efficient or what would feel best. For me, my marriage is a sign to the world. I'm supposed to love my wife the way Jesus loved the church, which means sometimes you should think I'm crazy for the ways that I love her. Why would you do that? And she's supposed to love me the way the church is supposed to love Jesus. And she does. She has to do it a lot more than I do, where she has to forgive things that I've done. And some people will say, that's crazy. Why would you do that? Because it's not about her. It's not about me. It's about telling the world something about who Jesus is. That's why we believe in one person that we're married to for our entire life. Why? That is not efficient. That is not efficient at all, and the world will tell you it's not efficient. But it's because that's how Jesus loves us. Jesus keeps his covenant with us throughout life. All of these things are, are tied to something far greater than us. If you don't view it as a sign, you'll miss it. And when we do sin here, here's how we're sinning. We're really being atheistic. We've got a lot of Christians, and I myself 
and like this who are not atheists. You know, we believe there's a God, but we act like there's not a God. So we come to marriage and we don't stop and think, what would God want for my marriage? We start with, what do I want for my marriage? As if there's not a God. In fact, when people come to me and they're like, Blake, I'm getting married. The first thing I ask them in pre-marriage counseling is, why are you doing that? Like, why are you getting married? Well, we love each other. Like, oh, okay, you know, that's, okay, that's, that's a reason. Or, you know, they make me feel really good or they're just my person. They make me whole. And I'm like, okay, you'll be back in three years for regular counseling. <laughs> if that's why you're getting married. Uh, why are you getting married? Very, very, very few. And this is a problem with the church. Very few people stop and say, because I, I believe we're called together to reflect the gospel to the world. I very rarely get a theological answer like that. And it's because we taught this wrong. Like when I grew up, they told me not to have sex before marriage. And it, it was like, they never told me why. Like, just don't do it because it's gross. You know, it's gross and immoral and disgusting. So save it for the one you love. <laughs> okay. You know, or, or it was presented like, it'll be so much better if you wait. And that's just not true. Uh, because some things in life, you get better with practice. I don't mean to be crass, but that's just the way that it is. I wish you, that was, see, we're at the point where inappropriate things come out. But, um, bring it home, Blake, land the plane, land the plane. (laughs) I wish somebody would have stood up and said, this isn't about you, Blake. If you believe in Jesus, you're a sign and your marriage is a sign. And so you're waiting, not because it's best or because it, you know, all the other things that they told me, but because Jesus has committed to you and the way you're going to be committed to your wife should ought to uh, image the way that Jesus has committed to the church. This is a powerful picture. And we're not perfect. None of us are perfect. That's not the point. We all are bad signs. We're all broken. It's like on the way to Stillwater. Uh, it's literally the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. You pass one sign that says 30 miles to Stillwater. You drive further down the road. And it says 38 miles to Stillwater. Like, what? who put that sign there? You know, it doesn't make sense. It's wrong. My marriage is like that a lot. Like if you look at my marriage and you're looking for the gospel, you'll see glimpses of it, but you'll see a lot of brokenness. And the same is true with church leadership and sexual integrity in general, gender, submission. All of these things are not about us. So when you're reading the Bible, you've got to ask what they're about. I'm going to leave the last ones for you to read by yourself. Uh, number 16, though, is you've got to fall in love with Jesus and the rest will take care of itself. Molly, you go ahead and come up and uh, Kim A also. This is really, really the point of it. If you fall in love with Jesus... You don't have to worry about any of the rest of this. Uh, I want to read John chapter 5, verse 37 and 40 one more time. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time. You haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you. He's talking to the Pharisees here. Because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures thinking you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I was listening to a sermon this week and the guy was speaking to prisoners on death row. And he said, at the end of it, he said, if I had one thing I could tell you guys. And I'm thinking, what would he tell them? You know, what would I tell them? And I thought maybe I I might go like a theological route about how they need the grace of Jesus and explain like the gospel. And, And he did. He talked about the gospel. But the one thing at the end he said is he said, I want you guys to get to know Jesus because you're about to meet him. And I thought, what a powerful, profound thing to say. He said, pick one of the gospels and begin to read it. Begin to pray and talk to Jesus and ask him to reveal himself to you. And I just got to say, we would be so much better off, friends, if we just all strive to get to know Jesus. If you want to know him, if you desired him above all else, you poured over the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. 
And he looked at him not to get abstract ideas about God, but to see who this guy named Jesus is. This flawless individual. C.S. Lewis says, I believe in God, not because like the sun I see him, but like the sun because I see everything by him. In other words, we, we, we believe there's a sun because everything else around us is illuminated by that sun. The same should be true when it comes to Jesus. I believe in God because I see everything in my life through the lens of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness, your mercy. Thank you that you're a good God who's loved us enough to give us your word. God, I pray that we would be good Bible readers. That as we come, we wouldn't have the position of, this is my life and my rules, but that we would see that our life is a gift from you. It's not my life, it's yours. And I want you to tell me how to live it. I don't live by my rules, I live by the rules of Jesus. Because I'm not a good king or I'm not a good queen, but you are a good, good king who laid down your life for your people. I pray that we would all leave here with that posture towards your word and towards this life. Why don't you guys take just about 20 seconds and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father, I pray that you give us the courage to obey what you've called us to. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and worship together. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.